This is Champagne Problems, where we come together to explore the gray areas of drinking. This is a judgment-free zone where we can all take a look at how we make decisions about our relationship with alcohol. Hello, hello, everybody. Welcome back. We've got a special co-host in the house today, our very own executive producer, Charlotte Cameron. We are so excited to have her in here today. Charlotte, welcome. Thanks, Robbie. I'm so excited to be uh, to be in here in a different capacity today. I know. It's so good to have you here. So today, Charlotte and I interviewed Dr. Lisa Damore, author of the two New York Times bestsellers, Untangled and Under Pressure, two absolutely necessary books for anyone raising young girls. Dr. Damore is a clinical psychologist specializing in child development with a heavy focus on teenage girls and young women. If you're a parent or a possible future parent, this is your episode. Let's go to Dr. Damore. Dr. Lisa Damore, welcome to Champagne Problems. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very glad to be here. We are very excited to have you on. The consensus of our listeners is around the desire for more information around parenting. I mean, it is across the board. We have covered just about every topic, and anytime we do any kind of a you know, questionnaire or whatever, you, what have you, it's always about parenting. So perfect to have you on. You're going to be our in-house expert. Um, all right, so let's dig in. would love to know what got you going in the direction of psychology as well as child development. I decided to be a psychologist when I was seven years old. <laughs> uh, sort of a funny story. My family um, had been living in Denver and we moved to London for a little while. And a friend of a friend, a family friend, also made the same move just coincidentally from Denver to London in the same week to start training with Anna Freud, um, Sigmund Freud's daughter who did child and adolescent work. And so this mutual friend connected us and my parents traveled quite a bit, I'm an only child. And so they used to leave me with Carla, the <laughs> woman who was studying with Anna Freud, um, who was a graduate student at the time, she was in her twenties. So I would stay with her in Hampstead at her apartment over the weekends often. And um, I became totally fascinated by what she was learning. I was six and seven years old asked her questions constantly, um, was just incredibly curious about it. She was very generous in sort of helping me understand it, you know, developmentally appropriate, but didn't, you know, dumb it down. And so when I was seven years old, I came back to our flat and I was like, I'm just going to do what Carla does. Like, I didn't even know what it was called. <laughs> so now I'm 51 and Carla's in her seventies and we're still very close. Oh, wow. Um, That's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. And so then I just knew, I, and I, I had about 10 seconds in college when I thought maybe I'll be a pediatrician. And then <laughs> I, I Fleeting. loved my psychology classes. And so I've always known. That is insane. What an indoctrination there <laughs> by Freud's daughter. And you're a parent as well. I am. I have a daughter who's 11 and a daughter who's 18. Two daughters. I love yeah. it. Often the pressure, often the expectation of someone who is considered to be a professional or an expert is to have my mental health, my <laughs> addiction, all of my stuff just buttoned up. So I would love to ask you what the pressure is like for you as a child development, a parental, you know, kind of an expert. What's what's that like? You know, it's a really interesting question. So I'll, I'll answer it sort of obliquely, but I think we'll get down to it. So when I was hugely pregnant with my first daughter like you know like one of those like you're just like at any moment you're about to deliver one of my senior colleagues said to me hey do you want to hear how psychologists mess up their kids uh. <laughs> 
You're thinking, do I want to hear this? Yeah. <laughs> and I said, yes, I would. And she said, they talk about feelings way too much. You know, when their child's having a tantrum, instead of saying, you need to pull yourself together, I'll come back when you've got yourself yeah. in order. Yeah. They're saying, oh, you're having a lot of feelings. Talk to me about your feelings. And so it was very helpful to me because I was raised by a pull yourself together kind of parent. Mm -hmm. Like I, you know, there was not a lot of like lengthy discussion of one's feelings. <laughs> right. um, they're basically like, get it together. We love you, but pull it together. <laughs> so I was able to fall back on what was familiar to me. I think that has been really guiding for me as a parent that it's not actually all that fun for kids to feel like emotions are constantly on display in the home. Mm. And that their emotions under constant interrogation in the home. I do think it's important that parents demonstrate emotion and their own emotion, both because like we're not robots, like we can't raise children if we're acting like robots, that's weird. Mm -hmm. But also because it's not the presence of distress that's a problem, it's how it gets handled. Right. And so yeah. For me to walk in the door and be like, I had a horrible day. Who's going to go on a walk around the block with me? I just mm. need to be outside. Mm -hmm. Is um, a really good use of my whatever is happening for me that day to show my daughters how I'd really like for them to handle distress as opposed to say, you know, I had a horrible day, so I'm going to have a huge glass of wine, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's not what I want to show mm -hmm. my kids. So I think there's a lot to be said for having things in order. I also think bluntly, there's a lot to be said for not not being married to a psychologist. Right? So, um, because of my husband's, a, he's a classicist. He teaches Latin and Greek, and he's a very practical guy. And so there have been times when, either based on my own past experience or based on what I know clinically, I've been unsure. I'm like, should we be saying something? Should we be doing something? Like, how big a deal of this? And I can. I'm very fortunate to have a partner who can um, keep things pretty. Um, centered and know what's worth reacting to, not reacting to. So, you know, it's an interesting, it's an interesting, um, I try to leave my hat at the door is what I would say. Like in terms of being a psychologist, I try to just be a mom when I'm home yeah. and not bring it too much in the door. Yeah. I love that. I think even translating that for people who aren't, you know, experts in psychology themselves, it sounds like it's more about modeling and teaching coping skills to manage those emotions than living in a feelings factory where everything's under a microscope. Beautifully said. I love that idea. We are not living in a feelings factory. And it's interesting because when we look at the research on what kids need, they need warmth and structure, right? So they, they need to feel liked. They need to feel loved, of course, but they also need to feel like there's limits on things. There's predictable outcomes, you know, that just because you're feeling really rotten doesn't mean you don't go to school today. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. those kinds of things. Um, we want feelings to be informing the conversation of family life. We don't want it to be running the conversation. Yeah. yeah. Life. You know, you so often hear about just the comfortability in discussing feelings in, uh, you know, not being shameful about, you know, how you feel. And, and I think we, we often, you know, as we do in our society is kind of overdo it at first and go into this feelings, 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 feelings. And obviously that's not going to work either. You know, you've just got to dial it back and just make sure it's comfortable. Oh, I love that. But, you know, that's kind of interesting. We're, one of the things we've been talking about, Robbie and I were talking about before you, before you joined us was this idea of nurture versus nature. And so that modeling is kind of, you know, recall, I'm, I'm recalling that conversation. And I'm curious what your stance is on that um, in terms of, you know, kids and their behaviors, their maybe risky behaviors in particular, but how much of 
the way children behave is nurture versus nature. I mean, are, are the odds stacked against them or are we as parents really responsible for a lot of that? What's your take? Well, it's interesting, you know, because we have this long debate in psychology, which started with this idea that kids were blank slates and, you know, you could shape them entirely. And then, of course, anyone who's had more than one child knows that's not true. Right. <laughs> Completely <laughs> different. Yeah. Totally different kids. And I, I mean, I have two totally different kids. And I have a younger daughter who is just this, you know, has she never stopped moving when she was in utero, <laughs> and, which was totally different from my older daughter, who is a much mellower, milder child. And I mean, I was like, I, when I when I was pregnant with my second daughter, I said to my husband, I'm like, we're having a son and he's hyperactive. Like, I need you to know this. <laughs> and of course, out comes, you know, a daughter who's just got a lot of juice. And so I think um, we know that there is such a thing as innate personality. You know, we call it temperament in, in developmental work. Mm. We, but there's no bad temperaments. We have three main categories that we identify, which is... Um, easy, difficult, which is still not a bad temperament, and then slow to warm up. Um, and difficult just means more reactive, having a harder time with transitions, you know, um, needing more time on things, you know, being less regulated in all sorts of ways. But the answer to your question is really this. When we've looked at all of the research on temperament, you know, there, there's all these different ways that kids come into the world with personality. When we look from the day they're born to faraway outcomes, what matters is goodness of fit with the parent. Mm-hmm. So it's not the you know temperament the child's born with, it's how well the parent can adapt themselves to that child's temperament. So it really is both together. Mm-hmm. It's both nature and nurture and the parent's ability to be flexible and sort of parent the kid they've got. Oh. You know, I'm, I don't want to distract us too much, but I'm so curious. Do you think that the school system, I mean, how does the school system partake in that process? I imagine, you know, that the primary responsibility is on the parent to learn to speak the language that that child is going to be most receptive to. But what about the school? Are they sort of looking at having, you know, kids with all three temperaments in their classroom? And, and I mean, how does the school fit into that? Well, hmm. school's a pretty narrow lane. And Mm -hmm. it works really well for kids who fit in that lane. And Mm so kids in that lane are probably what we would call more easy temperament, you know, that they're, they transition easily, they're, you know, they warm up quickly, Um, they learn conventionally, you know, that they actually don't have what we would call learning disorder, which is really just, they just don't learn, you know, they they learn in the way schools teach. Um, And schools are by and large designed for those kids. And Mm -hmm what we want to be really mindful of, and especially as parents of kids who may either not learn conventionally or who may need more time to warm up, may have a harder time with transitions, is that we probably do need to be ready to advocate them for them, for our children, ready to think if we can creatively about school placement. Not everybody has that option. But I think it's really about the parent learning what works for the kid. There's always something that works for a kid. And then either crossing their fingers that they get a teacher and there's wonderful teachers who actually can do this, you know, can work across a whole different range of kids in a classroom and and meet the needs of a wide range of children. Cross their fingers, they get one of those teachers or in a really loving way, talk with the teacher about, just so you know, this is my kid, takes him a little time to warm up. Here's what I have found works really well for him. You know, do that kind of communication about what works for your child. Hmm. I love that. You know, a lot of, of what I'm hearing you say is is are things that a lot of us 
figure out as we do this, right? Uh, you know, it, it'd be wonderful if we could all read a book and, and read your books and, and just go into parenting from the very beginning, knowing exactly how to be consistent and create trust and find that balance and find that temperament and work with it. Um, obviously, that's not always the case, and that is tough. So this, the, I guess the question is, you know, often I think about what I've done possibly incorrectly or where I've made mistakes or, or, or those kinds of things. And now I've got a 12-year-old and it's like, oh, my God, have I missed the boat? You know, how do I correct mistakes? You know, that kind of mentality. How would you speak to that? Well, all parents make mistakes for sure, sure. right? There's no perfect parent. And I think then you can kind of do that kind of look. Then there's, then there's two kinds of parents, right? So there's the parent who... Deny, deny, defend, defend, you know, and, and you've got a daughter who's about to, you know, be a teenager. Teenagers just start calling their parents out. You know, they they are very quick to point out our shortcomings. They are very eager for us to be better than we are. <laughs> and I will tell you some of the most painful interactions I've watched between parent and teenager is when the teenager is appropriately, accurately, maybe not nicely, but accurately mm. naming a shortcoming in the parent. And the parent is just flexing their authority. They're just saying, I'm the parent, you're the kid. You know, don't talk to me like that. My way or the highway. Yeah. My way that it gets really <laughs> ugly. And so the first thing we want is a parent who is, you know, the kind of parent we want to be is the parent who can acknowledge, like, I have shortcomings, I have flaws, and try to fix them, right? Yeah. Try to fix them. Grow. Try right. to make the same mistakes twice. So that's the kind of parent we want to be the kind of parent we don't want to be the other kind of parent is the one who's like deny deny and you know not acknowledging our shortcomings i think there's a huge huge amount of value in apologizing to children for when we make mistakes you know if we're talking about modeling if we're talking about trying to be our best versions of ourselves i think to say to a child you know i way overreacted to you know that mess in the kitchen or you know the news of your grade or whatever I owe you an apology. I am sorry. Um, and then to not continue to do that as a parent builds trust, builds authority, actually helps teenagers take us seriously because they know we're making mistakes. So we might as well acknowledge it. Yeah. So I think that's really powerful. But I think, you know, back to your question around consistency and, you know, maybe we're not always consistent as parents. I think we can lower the bar there in a way that's really helpful to parents and suits kids just fine, which is it's not actually that our kids need us to be perfectly consistent. Um, we can't be. There's too many variables going around. There's too many different scenarios. They need us to be predictable. Mm. And, and that's actually the standard I would hold. So I'll give you a, for instance, like my parents are pretty relaxed. I was you know, only a child and I was pretty well behaved. I had no curfew as a kid as a teenager, like they, they were like, come home when you come home, right? I mean, completely, you know, <laughs> permissive on that count. If I left a spoon in the sink, putting <laughs> the dishwasher, my mom would hit the ceiling. Okay, this is not consistent. This is not, <laughs> right. there's no logic to this like distribution of, you know, of like, you know, disciplinary response. Uh -huh. But she was totally predictable. Mm -hmm. And when kids have parents who are predictable, Kids can work with that. Mm -hmm. And so it gets actually to the question of drinking and where this comes in, because I think part of where it gets so hard for kids when parents have substance abuse problems is the parent is highly unpredictable. Uh, so one yeah. day 
you know, the mom is like, sure, I don't care if you have 10 friends over. And then maybe in another state of mind, maybe influenced by substances, the kid has 10 friends over and the parent absolutely, you know, blows a gasket. Mm -hmm. That's where kids can really struggle. And that becomes very paralyzing for kids because they don't know what they're going to get. So I think that's a way to think about it. Interesting. God, I he love that. Parenting Not itself. consistent, predictable. And that makes perfect sense because that leads me into kind of the discipline questions. You know, how do you create effective, you know, disciplinary action? And, and that's it. You know, you've got to be predictable in order for your discipline to be effective. And I use the example of, you know, people who yell too much where the yelling loses its luster. <laughs> you know, it's like the first few times it's like the kid gets scared. And then the 50th time it's like, all right, he's yelling again. It doesn't matter. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. What about, so, I mean, that makes so much sense when you think about the parent is not predictable. What about in general, maybe you have a parent who's, you know, excelling and being predictable. And um, so th there's a stable situation, but as kids inevitably approach teenage years, preparing them, prevention. I mean, is there anything that comes to mind immediately that you've either studied or, you know, seen firsthand where it, it's kind of a tool for success when it comes to kids and drinking? Well, certainly. So there's the drinking question. Let's start with like broad, like adolescent risky behavior in general, and then we'll home in on drinking. Perfect. Okay. Perfect. So I think your best disciplinary strategy as a parent, and I remember where I was when I learned this and who taught it to me, is to have a really warm, enjoyable relationship with your child. Mm. And the way it was taught to me was this guy, Neil Coulter, who was a psychologist who trained me. And he said, your good, warm, loving relationship with your child is money in the bank. <laughs> and you write all of your disciplinary checks against that count. Mm. So I'll put it in real world terms. So I remember when my older daughter finished eighth grade and she got out of school a half day. She was, it was a half day. She was out of school early. And she texted me saying, are you around? You know, I'm, I'm done, you know, because I was still at work. And I had a bunch of work I had to do that afternoon or wanted to do that afternoon. And I thought, actually, I can set this to the side and I can go get her and we can go out and celebrate the end of eighth grade. So I took her to a coffee shop and we celebrated. And it was both lovely in its own right. And I was also thinking, this is me putting money in the bank. We are having a really good time together in the middle of the day on a Friday. And so when you become a full blast teenager, you're going to not want to mess this up uh. by annoying me or making me angry. Like we want to think about it that way. And I, that's really powerful. And so often when I've cared for kids in my practice where the kid is misbehaving like crazy and the parents mad all the time, right? Or Robbie, as you said, they're yelling constantly. There's no cost to the kid of annoying the parent. There's not, they're not losing anything. Uh -huh. Like they're not enjoying each other. They're not having a good time. And so somewhat counterintuitively, often the behavioral intervention is for the parent to try to find a way to actually have fun with that kid, enjoy that kid, meet that kid somewhere in terms of like what they can share and enjoy together so that it comes at a cost to that child to do things that are going to basically piss the parent off, mm -hmm. right? You don't like, and so I think it's interesting when we look at the arc of development. So zero to five, we consider like, you know, early childhood, it's bananas. They're like fully challenging. Uh -huh. Six to 10 or 11, we call latency. Like all of that emotional intensity goes down. Six to 11 year olds are a blast, right? They're really fun. They like us. They want to go to the grocery store with us. They think <laughs> we're funny. 
And then adolescence begins at 11, which is earlier than everybody thinks it does. And what I feel like is parents, six to 11, man, that is when you are banking and banking and banking. You know, you are filling those coffers and really building something so that when your 13 or 14 or 15 year old is like, should I have a party when my folks aren't here? They decide not to because it's so fun to be with you when you're not mad at them. Right. <laughs> it sounds so simple and obvious now that you've said it that way. Yeah, hard to do in family life though. Yeah. 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 But yeah. another reason to apologize, right? When you screw it yeah. up on the end, going back and repairing with a child is very much in the service of both maintaining a good relationship and also making it worth it to them to not do things on their end to make it bad. Huh, it's, so then it's, we can talk about drinking. I mean, we can get into the details <laughs> of drinking, which are fascinating. Yeah. Well, I, and I just want to touch on what you just said. You know, it's not the fear of getting in trouble it's, it, and it's not really like a fear. It's more of um, a, a, whatever a lighter word for fear is, but of of losing what's good, right? It's, it's not. A cost. Yeah, exactly. A cost, right? Exactly. There's a price tag on this behavior, and I don't know that I want to pay that price because when my parents and I are getting along, it's really lovely. Yeah, so, I mean, like, what a what a better way to to achieve good behavior through. Uh, the 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 risk of losing something you love as opposed to the fear of being in trouble. Yeah, absolutely. So much healthier. Hmm. Okay, drinking. Let's do it. <laughs> Let's talk about drinking. What's a great, what's the ballpark age to begin the conversations? Well, you're beginning the conversation the minute your kid's born. Okay. If you call the conversation modeling, right? Yeah. So my number one truth of parenting, truth in parenting, I got from the inside of a chocolate wrapper, a dove chocolate wrapper. <laughs> Don't talk about it, be about it. Mm. So from the minute your kids can pick up on what you're doing, you are teaching them about drinking. And you're teaching them about the kind of relationship that you have with alcohol. And that is gonna be the most powerful messaging you are ever gonna send your child about the kind of relationship they might have with alcohol. And so we want to really be thinking about, you know, the place of alcohol in our own lives, the quality of our relationship with it. Are we using it to make our lives better? Which you can, like, there's no sure. question there's sure. such a thing as a healthy relationship with alcohol. Are we, do we have a relationship with alcohol that's not that healthy? I mean, we're basically modeling a relationship. Mm -hmm. And so you're doing that, you're doing that, you're doing that from the minute your kids can pick up on the fact that you're not drinking what they're drinking, right? Or, you know, they're just aware. And then you're going to layer any conversation you have with a teenager over that modeling that is well in place. So for instance, when I think with teenagers about alcohol and the dangers of it, obviously there's the, you can drink a huge amount and suppress your central nervous system and put yourself in medical jeopardy, right? There's that version of the story. Mm -hmm. Much more often, I mean, they're both horrifying, but much more often is you you're, you compromise your judgment in a situation which is unsafe, right? You have a beer and a beer or a beer and a half at a party that's out of control. And now you're really, you know, you could really be in jeopardy. So I like to talk with teenagers about alcohol from that standpoint and not like you're not supposed to drink because you're not because you're a kid, but like you're not supposed to compromise your judgment in any situation where you're going to need your judgment at any age of life. Hmm. So, and then you can build it on what's, so you notice that 
when we have a glass of wine, we're home, we're not driving. When we, if we go out and one of us has, you know, more than one glass of wine, the other one drives, right? Like, so we're having that conversation about you're watching us manage these variables right in front of you. We only do this in a safe way. And then I'm pretty comfortable saying to teenagers, there's really not a safe way for teenagers to be drinking in one another's company because there's so many variables involved. Mm. Um, so you can sort of start down that line. And then the other thing that we can talk about is that different states have different laws about whether or not their fam- families can serve their own children. And that can actually get roped into the conversation too. Hmm. How does modeling work in families where, for any reason, I suppose, the parents are abstaining from cons- consuming alcohol? I mean, what does, I don't, I'm, I'm not sure if my question is what you see or if it's studied, but I'm curious, I mean, how do, how does that models one sort of avenue, correct? And so where do those kids learn if they're going to decide to consume alcohol? I love that question. Well, so there's a reason that parents are abstaining. (laughs) Yes. Right. Yes. And so I actually, my body and alcohol have never gotten along. Like I've Mm -hmm. never been able to consume more than half of a drink without feeling like I just needed a nap. Like I've, and I've never tried to get past. Lucky you. Lucky you. (laughs) (laughs) I know exactly. Like I have a biology that really is very protective and keeps me safe from, you know, addiction. So in our own family, my daughters have, I mean, they've seen me take a sip of my husband's wine because I like the taste, but I can't do more than that. But they've seen, like, I basically don't drink. And I, and, and so then they've seen that, whereas my husband likes beer and he drinks some, you know, on the weekends in front of them. And so if a parent's abstaining, I think it's worth having a conversation about why the parent abstains. And so they know for me, I'm like, I, cause my day's ruined if I have half of anything and the next day is ruined. <laughs> and so I can't afford that. So we're having that conversation. Um, they also see that we are very social have a very good time, that the, that to me, being able to drink is not coupled with being able to have a good time socially. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've said that as much, and I've said that that's how I did college, right? I went to parties, I just left by 11 because there wasn't yeah. much going on after that that was interesting to me. <laughs> and so, but it also may be the case that the parents abstaining because they have a drinking problem. Mm-hmm. And that is a conversation that you can start to have with kids. You say, you know what, here's why I abstain. I abstain because... I, you know, I, my relationship with alcohol is unhealthy and I know that. And the only way to have a good relationship with alcohol is for me to not have a good, have a relationship with alcohol. (laughs) And then you can start to lay down a conversation around the genetic vulnerabilities that may very well be passed down and how to think about those things. But I mean, kids see it all. They are taking in information. And so either you are helping kind of highlight what they should be taking away from what they're observing or you're not having a conversation and missing a huge opportunity to talk about what they yeah. are already observing. Mm-hmm. I love that idea of making it personal too. And and again, modeling, right? Like get to know yourself, be really in tune with who you are and what works for you and make decisions from that place as opposed to this blanket. You know, I think when we were growing up, the families I knew that completely abstained from alcohol, there wasn't a lot of discussion around it. And then it was this kind of taboo subject. And then those kids mostly went on and drank a ton of alcohol in college. I think now parents are much more conversational about the why and getting in touch with who you are. So it sounds like that that's an important piece of the puzzle. I think so. Yeah. I mean, just to provide examples, I mean, I, I am in recovery and I haven't had a sip of alcohol for my daughter's entire life. So she's never seen me drink. 
and I also work in this field, so she she sees kind of what I do, and it's it's very much a topic inside of our household. It's interesting to think, you know, sometimes she asks me some questions that I don't want to tell the answers to, you know, how bad was it? You know, did you ever get arrested? You know, stuff like that. And I, I, I mean, my story would, would scare some adults, more or less a 12 year old. Uh, so, I, you know, I guess I'm wondering, you know, how, how much, and, and even beyond just that topic, I mean, how honest are we supposed to be about our own pasts? A great question, right? Because <laughs> kids also say to parents, hey, did you ever smoke weed, yeah, right? And right. You need to be ready to answer that question one way or another, because yeah. saying to any kid or teenager, none of your business is basically saying, I'm a big fat hypocrite and I'm not going to talk about this with you, which is not going to help things go better. I don't believe there has to be full disclosure on every. Oh, thank God. (laughs) (laughs) I think there's, I think we are allowed a degree of privacy about our own lives. I don't, I think you can have an honest conversation that does not have every grim detail included. Right. You know, your kid, you know, yourself, you know, what's going to be helpful for them to know or not know. I do think it is an incredible opportunity to be able to say to a teenager, I don't drink and here's why. And to really lay out, you know, this is the kind of relationship I had with alcohol. This is the sort of biological vulnerability I may have very well conferred to you. You know, I am so fortunate to be here and safe and able to care for you the way I do. You know, I mean, to really talk about um, how dangerous alcohol can be, how incredibly dangerous and destructive alcohol can be, especially as someone who's, you know, on the other side of that and, and, and doing such, you know, incredible work to stay on the other side of that. I think that's a, it's a gift you can give her. Yeah. My curiosity just, just skyrockets around that because I specifically recall some things my father told me and I, and it was, my dad was, he had his own issues with addiction and that kind of thing. And, and he probably thought he was being the cool dad or trying to relate to me and that kind of thing. And all it was doing, and it, and I think in his mind, he was probably trying to say, here's what not to do, but he just didn't know how to actually execute that properly. Because in my mind, it was a green light. Hmm. I mean, he talked about certain drugs and certain things that he had done. And I was like, Ooh, guess that means I can do it. <laughs> He's okay. But, yeah, no. And I think that that is the worry. And I think some parents, you know, that if a kid says, Hey, did you smoke weed? Right. And you know your kid, you might say, Look, I'm going to give you an honest answer, but I don't want you to take it for permission. You know, right. I, like you can just, just be say explicit. That. Yeah. I like that. I think that, you know, these questions about like drinking and our own drinking and our own adolescent histories, they can feel very much like, um, you know, these kind of whirlpools that we get dragged down into and get really disoriented in. What I will say is, you can steady yourself if you totally reframe the question around safety right like mm-hmm. the, like that's the that's the big neutral bottom line and so you can say look i don't want you drinking or i don't want you trying any drugs because they are not safe and i am very fortunate that given that i did try these things that i never got badly hurt or never badly hurt somebody else like i got really lucky i don't want you anywhere near the stuff because it is unsafe your safety means the world to me and so as long as you take it back to safety, it's not about what you did. It's not about how you, you know, I mean, it is about your kid's safety, which is all we care about. And the reason I get really uncomfortable when kids are messing around with substances is it's not 
safe. I don't care what else. I don't mm-hmm. care if it's legal. I don't care if the parents are cool with it. Like it's not safe. Yeah. Bottom line. I love that. I have a tendency, I think, especially when you think about teenagers and drinking, um, and that's leaving a lot of other substances out of the conversation. But to, I personally get very fear-based based on you know things I witnessed amongst my peers and my own decision-making when I was in, in that kind of age range. And so I always get nervous about transferring that fear-based approach, but it sounds like that there's some permission and just really taking it back to safety and it isn't safe and, and continuing to really come from that space. Absolutely. And and what I do like, safety's neutral. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's totally neutral. And, and that's why we don't, I mean, there's a million reasons why we don't want kids messing with drugs or alcohol, you know, or getting themselves in trouble with those things at any point in life. The bottom line is because it's an unsafe thing to do. And, mm-hmm. and so we can say, just as I wouldn't have you drive in the car without a seatbelt, I don't want you drinking at a party. Like these are unsafe things. That's why I don't want you to do them. I love you and I want you safe. <laughs> My guess is that um, this is probably going to be a very similar answer, but I'm curious when experimentation does start to take place, whether a kid is getting caught or coming to you and saying that they've tried something Um what do you recommend in terms of parents responding to that? I know that's going to be a big question from our listeners. And I would like to chime in and, and piggyback on that question and say, is there a difference in response in, in age ranges? Yeah. So if I hear that a kid under, I'm just going to pick a number. This is, you know, this number can be up for grabs, but I'll just say if a kid under 15 is experimenting, that is one I have one reaction to that as a clinician. That is young. If you tell me a 17 or 18 year old has tried alcohol or mm-hmm. like, that's a different conversation, right? right. So I think, I think that um, I feel very strongly like that part of what matters are the norms, right? And so bluntly a kid who's trying alcohol at 18 is, you know, there's mm-hmm. some norms that they're not that far out of though still most kids are not drinking at that age. Whereas if you've got a 12, 13, 14 year old who's dabbling in that, like they're way outside the norm. And so I I think it's a different reaction. I think it's a different level of concern that I would have. I think what this gets to is a very interesting question that I don't know the answer to about whether or not we should let kids try alcohol with us. Mm, Yeah. Um, And and I, I think there's a lot of answers to this question. I don't think there's one right answer. I do think um, it can be reasonable, and certainly there's some laws that support this for the parent to say, look, we don't want you drinking when you're not with us, but you're free to try, you know, a few sips when you're with us. Because the law, like actually where I am in Ohio, the law allows that. It allows you to serve your underage child at your house. Really? I didn't know that. You can't serve anybody else's underage child, but you can actually serve your own. How underage? Oh. Is there a law there? <laughs> I don't know. Wow. I actually don't know. I mean, we can look it up. I know that it's allowed. Okay. Um, Interesting. And so, you know, in my own home, if I were inclined, I could say, look, what we're doing is actually within the law. And what the law is recognizing is it's about the variables involved. So if we take it back to safety, you can sit here and have a couple sips of my wine. You are safe. You are home with us. You're going nowhere. You're driving nowhere. There's not like random people around here that you need to have your good judgment for. And so we can continue to make it a conversation about safety. I think we need to try to keep the lines of communication open with kids about what they do when they're not with us. Mm -hmm. I think 
that you can say to kids two things simultaneously that sound contradictory, but actually are fine to say together. So the first one is, we don't want you drinking or doing any drugs. It's not safe, right? And especially when you're not with us, you should not be doing, you know, we'll just say, you should never be doing drugs and you should definitely yeah. not be drinking if you're not with us. And if you are in a situation where you don't feel safe, either because you've already done it or people around you are doing it, we will come get you, no questions asked. Mm -hmm. and, and I think you just put both of those out there. And again, I'm just going to beat this to death. Safety, 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 safety. <laughs> it's all about safety. Yeah. Um, and kids, you know, they make bad judgment. They make bad decisions. They do things they shouldn't have done. They do dumb things. Like that's the nature of adolescence. I think the the calculus we want as parents is we want to lay down the rules. Kids actually do change their behavior based on what parents say their expectations are. We know that to be true. And we want it to be that if a kid's at a party and they've had something to drink or they feel funny because they tried something they shouldn't have tried and they don't feel safe, we want them to think, is it safer for me to call my folks and have me come, them come get me? Or is it safer for me to ride this out and see where it goes? We want the answer to that question is the safest thing is for me to call my parents. Mm -hmm. I never called my parents. Did you feel safe? Did you feel like you could or couldn't? I was drinking pretty heavily. I was probably the one that was making other people feel unsafe. Okay. Not in a you know yeah. terrible way, but I was certainly the one partying. But at the same time, if I ever did feel unsafe, say, take it back a few years and I was, you know, just getting going, I would have been scared. See, yeah. that's, that's, you know, you, you need to be the safer option. Yeah. Hmm. I think it does work sometimes. I mean, I did call my parents once in high school. I was at a, a party and I wasn't drinking and every, you know, everybody else was. And that's okay. That was not completely uncommon for me. Um, but the cops came and we all ran. And the Michigan was the middle of winter. We're outside with no shoes on underneath these trees in the snow. And I, I was like, I can call my mom. She'll come get us. And, you know, I mean, of course, the the decision to run was not a good decision because you can get arrested for that. So there was still a conversation to be had, even though I wasn't drinking. But um, yeah, I think, I think that there are times where that conversation comes up and, and you find a kid in that crisis moment where they think I could call. And now is maybe that moment. Yeah. yeah. I've read your book, Untangled, as has my wife, as has all of our friends. And uh, how unique of an approach is it to be honed in on, on little girls compared to little boys? It's a good question. You know, the risks are different. Yes. For being impaired. The, the safety, right? Safety question changes. Yeah. And so I think that as parents are having these conversations that are entirely driven by safety, they're probably going to have slightly different conversations with their sons and their daughters. Um, you know, what we know is boys get themselves in trouble with drinking um, often involving cars, you know, that, that like, it can be like very, like when we see a, we see a spike in deaths in adolescence and it's entirely accounted for by boys in cars. Oh. Like, I mean, it's really dangerous um, and drinking doesn't help that. And so I think, you know, with our sons, the conversations may be more along the lines of, you know, you are not like, I will come get you like drink, like, drinking is one thing, drinking and driving is a completely other thing, you know, I mean, like to really have that conversation. And then also um, around physical intimacy, you know, there's a lot of conversations we need to be having with our sons that are different a little bit than our conversations with our daughters around um, where alcohol comes into that, what it means if they are impaired, what it means if the person they're with is impaired, mm. 
um, you know, how we want them to be thinking about that, how we want them to keep themselves safe and keep the other person safe. You know, I mean, that that is a conversation that we need to be having. I think for our daughters, the conversations tend to be more around physical safety and their vulnerability if they are not sober and, you know, really talking with them about, um, the importance of staying sober in situations where they could be vulnerable. It's complex though. It's very, very complex. I, I've written, I wrote a piece about this in the Times a while back where, um, you know, there's such a double standard around sex still, you know, despite what we may wish, um, you know, whereas, you know, if boys are sexually active, they're seen as, you know, kind of players. If yep. girls are sexually active, they're usually called sluts. Yep. And so one of the ways that we know from the research that drinking can come into it for girls is girls may want to be physically intimate and then use drinking for reputational cover, right? That they can say like, well, I didn't, I was drunk. Like, so, I mean, we, we've seen this in the data, right? That mm. sometimes that will happen. So part of how we work against that in families, especially for raising daughters, is we normalize desire. We normalize the fact that girls may want to have physical intimacy. We talk about the horrendous double standard. We talk about, you know, why that operates and how to, you know, how girls can think about that. Um, we don't play into the double standard in our own conversations at home, but these are all, you know, very um, interlocking conversations about how we talk about physical intimacy, how we talk about alcohol, how we talk about the two of them and how they come together. There's a lot there. There is a lot there. And I know that was a very vague question uh, that you could <laughs> probably go on forever about. It's, you know, it makes me think, and and this probably falls into, you know, part of the stereotype. It's like you, you have to teach young girls how to play the right defense and you also have to teach the boys how to play the right offense. I don't know why I say it that way, but it just, I think of my brother talking to his three boys and it's like, dude, you, dude, dude, you can't do this, dude, you can't do that. And then me, it's like, all right, you need to be aware of this and you need to be aware of that. And it's almost like a defense versus an offense. But it's true. <laughs> but that defense offense framework, like that is how we talk about heterosexual interactions. Sure. And we do have the research showing that when we look at the sex talk, you know, between boys and parents, it is very much an offense related one. Like, okay, like, dude, if you're going to have sex, wear a condom, like, you know, make sure you get consent. Like, mm -hmm. but it sort of presumes, you know, that there's going to be, the boys are going to have their foot on the gas. And then we presume the girls are going to have their foot on the brakes, you know? So we say to girls, like, don't get yourself in a bad position. Don't get, you know, don't be vulnerable. Like, don't, 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 don't. And we know this from the research. We know this is very much the pattern. What we find is it has an unintentional downside, which is basically we're saying to girls, just don't. And we're basically saying to boys like, and we're also saying to girls, like it's your job to regulate uh, heterosexual relationships, not yeah. the boys' jobs. Right. Um, so when we look at where this is done better, it's actually the Dutch who do this much better than we do. Ah, and the Dutch. Basic, the good old Dutch. Their basic <laughs> premise is desire is normal desire on both sides is normal and girls are allowed desire. And so when I talk with any gender, but especially thinking with girls about how to think about sexual intimacy, I will say to them, the first question you wanna ask yourself is what do you want? Like, what would you like to have happen? And I one time had a ninth grade girl in a class go, no adult has ever said that to me. And I was like, yeah, no, we don't talk about what you want, right? Yeah. And then the second question is what does my partner want? And then the third question is, what do we both want? And then the fourth question is, are there risks to what we want? And what we see is when we endow girls with desire, when we actually acknowledge that they may want something to happen physically, 
they take much better care of themselves. When they are strictly on defense, they do not take very good care of themselves. Mm, that's great to know. Wow. You have your own fantastic podcast. I was I had the pleasure of listening to an episode about how to talk to kids about gummies um, before you came on. And that in and of itself is a fascinating topic. So I think at least we have the resource of being able to say to listeners that they can get more access to your expertise and your knowledge through your podcast. It's called the Ask Lisa Podcast. Yep. And we actually have episodes about how to talk with kids about consent. How to, like, We really tried to unpack that quite a bit over time. Perfect. So Dr. Lisa Damore, why do you care? It's interesting. I have a, a visceral reaction to questions about adolescent safety. I, I mean, I, I, I just, I mean, obviously I work in mental health and I think across all forms of mental health, but I think it doesn't matter what else is going on with your teenager if your kid's not safe. And I am 100% sure that how we talk with teenagers about risk behavior is the most powerful force in their safety. And if we are threatening and high-handed and disconnected from them, I think with no question, they become less safe. Mm -hmm. If we see ourselves as the partners in their safety, invested in their realities, trying to strategize with them about how to keep themselves safe in light of the landscape they occupy, we get closer to them and that closeness keeps us them safe. And so I think the center of my caring is grownups have a lot of power over adolescent safety and it comes down to how we talk with them about risk, not how closely we supervise them or how much we threaten them. Mm-hmm. I do have one more question on that note, which is we try to give our listeners three sort of main takeaways from each guest. And so um, in line with the why do you care, what are three perhaps actionable takeaways you would like the audience to leave with from from this conversation that most deeply align with what you think um, can move the needle? So I think one is don't talk about it, be about it. Right? If you want your child to cope well, you have to cope well in front of them. If you want your child to have a healthy relationship with alcohol at any point in their life, you have to model that in your own home. I think two is the goal is to maintain good, close working relationships with our kids. And a big part of how we do that is we own our shortcomings and we apologize and we try to be better. Having a teenager can help you grow like nothing can help you grow. <laughs> so I think we can all grow through having adolescents. And I think the third is in my mind, you can measure adolescent safety in terms of their proximity to adults, their relational proximity to adults. So if you want your kids safe, figure out what gets you closer. If you want your kid unsafe, figure out how to push them away. Hmm. Incredible. You heard it from the source, ladies and gentlemen. Dr. Lisa Damore, thank you so much. We really appreciate your time. We do. Thank you. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are solely those of the hosts and guests and are not a substitute for medical advice. If you feel like you may need professional help, here are some resources. For the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration hotline, call 1-800-662-4357 or visit smsa.gov. For listeners in the Charlotte, North Carolina community, visit dilworthcenter.org or call 704-372-6969 or visit theblanchardinstitute.com or call 704-288-1097.